Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Oh, look at my front butt.
who is taking care of this uh, disabled girl who ends up getting into supernatural shenanigans from what the trailer looks like. Right. So wait, Those so are wait, not what, exactly what, what you would see at the marquee nowadays. Nowadays, no, we're no, definitely not. Like, yeah. Nowadays, we're seeing stuff like, ooh, a phone app that tells you when you're going to die. Right. Um, like, I don't know. I just like kind of classic stories in a way. Um, so, to me, Jugface was definitely just kind of a classic, I don't know, just, you know, story. Uh, and it was all about you know, the details of the story and not so much like a marketing device, like, uh, you know, your cell phone is haunted or something like that. Yeah. Well, look at the but DVD cover. They kind showed of... the main girl with like glowing demonic eyes, which has nothing to do. Well, with I mean, <laughs> right, right. You know, marketing and yeah, I'm pretty sure while, you know, I wasn't 100% thrilled with that cover, I think it probably did get a certain amount of clicks probably on, uh, you know, the different services and maybe not so, you know, many clicks, you know, depending on who the person was. But I think, you know, when they boil it down to kind of these marketable, you know, iconic items or images, you know, when they're putting a, a product out, they, they know, okay, if it looks like a possession movie, then it's going to get a certain amount of attention. And what's funny yeah. is when you go to different uh, countries, it the you know the cover changes and the title changes. So Jugface became the pit in England. Jugface, I guess, was too abstract. And then uh, and then when it goes to like Japan, it was called something like the Suspiria of the, some small village, and it's really longer title. And yeah. the cover, they made it even more wild, more kind of supernatural looking. Yeah. Well, the first place I hey, heard Hey, sorry about... I'm late. Can you all hear me? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking of that hey. voice, that voice is the man who's the reason why I've seen Jugface because of his review in Wings Chop. He was, like, drooling over it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that would be Mr. Tony Strauss. <laughs> So, take hey, it, Tony, and tell us why you loved Jugface so much. Okay. Well, hope you got time. By the way, hi, Chad. Nice to nice to talk to you. Um, hey. And by the way, hello, Tony. It's Carl. Hey, Carl. How you doing? Not too bad. How about okay. yourself? Pretty good. Sorry I'm a little late. Been, uh, I got buried in the new issue of Wings Shop and then looked up at the time and said, oh, darn it, I am supposed to be on a podcast right now. Um, <laughs> so anyway, about Jugface, it was something that uh, back when uh, uh, Jeff Wedding's film A Measure of the Sin premiered at uh, Polygrind, um, he and Katie Groshong handed me a, uh, a button that just had, you know, that image you were just talking about of uh, Ashley Lauren Carter's face with the white eyes, and it just said jug face. And, uh, of course, I was immediately intrigued by the imagery. And um, so I ended up, as soon as the movie came became available, I rented it. And, uh, no, come to think of it, I bought it outright. Um, 
and watched it and immediately fell in love with it. It plays into my just rabid fandom of folk horror and Manly Wade Wellman type stories. And I'm, I'm such a fan of movies that just, without really warning you, just immerse you into the world of some strange, isolated culture. I mean, that's really what folk horror is all about. And the movie just won me over. I mean, it's one of those few films that I come across where I honestly wouldn't even change a single note of what's there. Um, and so I immediately took to the clouds and started screaming at everyone I knew that they must see this movie. And Steve was one of the first people I went to said, Hey man, you got to check this out. It's Southern, Southern folk horror. And it is just what movies like this need to be. So yeah, that's, that's basically how I got into jug face. And I've been rapidly waiting for uh, Chad to bring something out ever since. And I'm really excited that, that that's finally happened. Was the cool, fact man, that, thanks. uh, I ain't gonna spoil much of the ending, but it's the fact was the fact that you didn't show what you didn't show at the end of the movie. Was that because of budgetary concerns or was that a conscious choice? Oh, uh the the thing from the pit that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, uh it was really it was it was it was a concept, you know, about you you couldn't uh, even show it really because it was like this presence that was really in my mind like otherworldly so really any attempt to show it I never felt would be right and within the context of the movie every time the monster or the creature kills somebody you're seeing through its eyes and and that's that's what Lauren you know the Ada character is seeing so she's being punished so she's seeing through the creature's eyes as it kills someone from her, her community. So there was never a real reason to show the, you know, the, you know, force or whatever, the monster outright, you know, so that was really first a concept based idea. And then, you know, technically for, you know, doing a low budget movie that made it, you know, work a lot better than to try to show it, you know? So, yeah, it was, it was really a concept based thing, you know, first but that really played into the kind of the, the low budget nature of the movie you know secondly Chad, well, I, I, uh, say for me, I had Tony a... and Carl that we love it when things aren't explained rather than when they are Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had a question for Chad if you don't mind about that creature um, I rewatched the uh, that little half hour behind the scenes featurette the other night on the on the jug face DVD uh-huh. And uh, it seemed to me, and maybe I was misinterpreting what was what was said in that interview, that you had not necessarily requested a creature to be built from the effects team, but they just kind of went above and beyond and made one. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, that is true. Well, I, I mean, that was, was really cool of, of them, and it was a great design. Yeah, yeah. It just, like, you know, didn't fit. Like I said, yeah. when we get into the concept of it, you know, so we in, we did end up using shots of it. They were just used as layers uh, when Ada is like having her visions. Like the, it's just like the layers over her face were actually the images of the creature. So it, so we ended right. up using those images, just not in a literal way, you know. 
Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was. I mean, it's stellar work by that team because I'd never really seen a creature done that way. But I do agree with your choice about it better being left to the imagination and kind of subliminal imagery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Doug sure. faces their sales are creepy as hell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the actual ones in real life, the face jugs that you you find are even creepier than than that. They're they're more grotesque, and uh, that's why. I mean, I really, I don't know if you guys know the story of how I came up with the idea, but I was in a um, a museum that just does folk pottery in the North Georgia mountains, and it's a face uh, jug museum. And I had never seen them or noticed them really before until I went there. And as I was walking around, I, I immediately thought, oh, those, these are so creepy. Like, I want to have one. I want to buy one of these things. Like, where do I get one? And as I'm walking around, you know, I'm just like – I'm watching this video of this potter talk about the process of making the face jugs. And it seemed like – I've said this before. It seemed like he was talking about backwoods black magic somehow. And just standing there, I saw my, in my mind this possessed potter. He's making a face jug from a pit that's speaking to him. And once he, once he makes the face, he realizes it's someone from the community that has to be sacrificed. So I basically came with the whole concept just standing in this museum. Yeah, it's a great concept. Nice. And if you haven't seen it you, this Halloween, you can go on Tubi and watch it. Or just go to your local pl- used place or Amazon and buy the DVD, dang it. Yeah, you can yeah, get the it's DVD on, on, on Amazon for like seven bucks now. Right, yeah. Yeah. So basically there's no excuse not to watch it, people. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this means yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I'm just letting you know I hear you. <laughs> Good, good. <laughs> and me and Tony, the reason he told me about Judd's face first is me and him bonded over a field in England. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's a cool movie. Yeah. I think I saw that where it came out post Judd's face. I don't, I don't, or maybe I saw it before. I don't remember when. Yeah, they were but right yeah, around the same time. Yeah, that's another creepy folk horror film that really doesn't say what's going on and expect. That's another thing about Jug Face. It expects you to be smart enough to figure out what's going on and doesn't hold your hand. Yeah, everything you need to figure it out is there. You just yeah, gotta I mean, kind of immerse yourself in it and figure it out. Right. I mean, I don't remember if I was trying to figure out a way to explain it, but I, in general, like stories that are abstract, you know, that you're not supposed to necessarily connect the dots in a literal way, even though everything is pretty much explained if you just think about it in Jug Face. Whereas my latest film, there's a lot of more, I don't know, abstract ideas in it that to me just make sense, but not in an overt literal way. Right. Well, even your poster is abstract. I mean, it's just a stark vision of the cult symbol. Yeah, yeah. Why? With the like well, crayon because, lettering, yeah. Well, it's because it's. Uh, oh, you're talking about the the jug face poster or the uh, dementor oh, poster? Yeah, Dementor. the dementor poster. It's just the symbol, the cult's kind of symbol. Um, 
I think when we when I actually shot it's it's actually from that image literally is from the movie from a moment in the movie and I just remember thinking it just you know it just stood out and that symbols throughout the movie and it's like the I guess iconic image from the movie where with jug face you know the really the jug to me was the the symbol or the or the image that people would remember and then within the mentor you know that the only thing I really had um, was that symbol and I just thought you know what that just on off white would just be really cool and would just be really intriguing because like yeah the poster came out and there's no title on it other than in the credit block and I just I don't know I just think that would stick more in people's minds than uh, yeah that's one know. of those if I was walking past the multiplex and just looking at the posters and then that would be the one that made me say what what the heck is this right <laughs> yeah, in, in in Knoxville there was um I had the posters kind of sitting on a table and some guy that was there had seen on online when the poster was released and thought you know, remembered it and then just seeing he didn't know that my movie was that poster until he was at the festival and saw my poster sitting there and remembered back to, you know, that glimpse he had online. And he was like, Oh wow. It's, Whoa, it's that movie. So like, you know, people had seen it online and it had stuck with him and he just needed to see it again to really trigger it, which was cool. Yeah. Has, you're uh, lucky. Here... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask if anybody besides myself have seen Dementor yet. No. No, they they haven't. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I Yeah, I watched it yesterday and just was totally taken away by it. It's still really sitting with me today. Um, and uh, it's it's got it's, – it's completely different um, as far as its setting and, and – uh, and feel from Jugface, but to me also it feels like it could easily take place within the same world because it still involves that that aspect of 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 folk mythology and and backwoods magic that comes into for for lack of a better term it comes into the city and uh, it it. It does a really nice job of keeping you drawn in to this mysterious um, mythos that is never fully explained, but I think that works tremendously to the film's benefit because it, it's quite haunting, and the, the, the lack of understanding, the full understanding, really just makes it all that much scarier. Um, yeah, great job on that one. Chad. Oh, thanks, thanks, man. <laughs> really, really liked thanks. it. It's it's a totally different approach in a way. Um, how I made that movie. I mean, Jug Face was very much your typical kind of like I have a storyboards, I have the shot list. We're going to be making literally that, you know. Where you know, Dementor, I'm the cameraman. Uh, Jeff Wedding is the DP, but I'm just there's no shot list. I'm just filling right. out the the scene with what we have to work with. And that was particularly on purpose because of working with my sister and others like her that, you know, were wouldn't mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't necessarily do what we wanted them to do. <laughs> At least easily, you know. And but then really 
with Jug Face too, I mean, you're naturally aligned with the protagonist. And so you're going to follow emotionally what happens to that person. Like, and so that would be Ada and Jug Face. And so mm-hmm. with that story, you're just kind of dropped in with her and you have to kind of like, you know, suss out what is going on within that, that world as you're watching the story. And then you look at Dementor and that's, it's even more so because with that story in Jug Face, she knows everything about the world with that, with Dementor, right. this character doesn't fully remember everything at all. So mm-hmm. she only knows a little bit more than the audience. So you're really aligned with her throughout the film. And so you go through this traumatic remembering with her and I've seen people, you know, in the reviews say like, you know, the music and the mentor gets annoying or whatever. It's used too much. And I'm like, but that was the point because it's like increasing the intensity of the flashbacks and the trauma is coming back to the main character. So you're going to experience it more as well. And uh, so anyway, so that's, that's kind of like the idea of, of how I did the mentor was really to align the audience member with the experience of the, of the main character as, as best as I, as best I could. Right. So and the, I, the way you have a shot. question here. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Okay. Uh, so I, I just wanted to ask so that people understand. I saw the, uh, a trailer for Dementor t- today, in fact, not too long ago, like a half hour ago. Um, and, you know, working with your sister, why don't you explain, um, you know, working with someone with, with uh, uh, physical or, 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 you know, and in this case, I believe it's Down syndrome. At least that's what it looks like. And, right. and, and what challenges you had and things like that. And uh, I have another question. It adds to Carl's question. Which came first, the idea for the movie or you wanting to work with your sister? Okay. Uh, ever since I was in – I went to film school. I went to art school, you know, being – I had been making movies with uh, my parents' VHS camcorder, you know, that type of thing, and went to art school because that's, <laughs> that's all I could do, uh, and uh, found that they had a film program and just kind of fell in love with it. And um, – the whole time I, I thought about every once in a while, particularly the documentary classes, I would think, well, maybe I should do something on my sister, you know, but then I would think, well, you know, it wouldn't make that good of a story. There's no story behind it other than my sister lives kind of a different life than, than, than we do. And anyway, it's just always stuck with me. And, but I always decided, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to make, do a story just to make people feel sorry for her or something like that. And so then when – then just really in the past few years, I think I was watching a movie called um, – oh, geez, what is, I'm going to blank on, on the movie. But it's, 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 it's about a, a school uh, for the deaf, and it, it won con a few years ago. Uh, I'll, I'll remember the title in a second. But uh, the whole movie is shot right – no one's speaking. It's all in sign language, and there's no subtitles. And it was, it's an amazing movie, The Tribe, that's what it's called. And when, when I oh, saw yeah. that, I, I immediately thought, oh, wait, I could do something with my sister in her environment and how interesting that could possibly be. But then you know, the question of – I think he had – four months of rehearsal with that, all those kids from that school to pull that movie off. And it's really an amazing movie. And 
I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to do that, and it's not going to matter anyway <laughs> because it's like, okay, if I think about my sister and her normal behavior, you know, just from growing up with her, it's like, okay, she, I know in any situation she'll do any like a number number of uh, you know a number of things, and just using that sort of knowledge and like, okay, so. What could or I, could I get her to do? Because at first I was thinking, okay, I'm not going to get her to do anything because when they think about people with Downs and how they kind of organize them is like based on like what they – mentally, what is their age? And that's how they kind of determine their level of care. And my sister, well, they would say, well, she's like a four-year-old or something, even though that's not the truth at all. She's you know very wise in ways and doesn't have any understanding of certain things in other ways. So it's more complex than that, but it just helps them. But in my mind, I was okay. I'm not going to be able to get her to do too much. So what should I do? Because because I was thinking like, what what would it be like to have my sister in a horror movie or to make a horror movie with my sister? And you know, it's kind of like her world and my world is coming together. In the beginning, I thought I'm just going to make a I'm going to shoot it like a documentary, and I'm just going to follow her around for a month. That was the first idea. And then I thought, and then I would just fabricate scenes to play into what I had shot. And then I thought, okay, this is a cool idea, but it's going to be way too hard. And particularly for sound, because I would need a sound person with me to record, you know, good sound and just doing that for a month, you know, I could have nothing in the end. So that's may not work out. So then I thought, okay, no, for the money I have, I'm going to do a, a structured story and shoot a, you know, handheld basically or in that style and just and i'll write the script and my sister won't be the main character but she'll be the secondary character you know and you know and so i would just approach it like a normal feature and then so when i wrote the scenes with her or with others that were like her you know like i like i wrote for instance like a number of scenes where she cries in the script and then the movie showing cries in two scenes but I wrote it many times because that's like a normal behavior that she does, and not not when she's upset about anything either. This is just something that she's learned over time gets her attention, so she'll she'll cry to act out, you know. And because like there's a scene in the movie where they're at this senior citizen dance, and you can't exactly tell too much in the shots that she's crying, but she is crying. And the funny thing is, if I just go two frames after the shots that you see. She's laughing her head off, and then she's back crying again, you know. So it's really she's just like, you know, being silly. And, and no, because like every every family get-together that we've ever had, she'll start – she'll do it, and we'll just be like, Stephanie, you know, are you just – you know, stop. You're you're being silly, aren't you? And she'll just like start laughing her head off, you know, because it's like, you know, a way to <laughs> manipulate people. Right. So, so anyway. So yeah, so so I came up with the idea of like how to build this horror movie around my sister, and then it became like okay, we're gonna make a structure story, and then we're gonna have an, another character who's gonna be the main character, but she's gonna be looking after Stephanie, and that's how I'm gonna approach it. So okay, so I, I wanted did I answer the question? <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to know uh, if uh, the reason you for the principal characters, you use their real first names, same as the actors. Was that because Stephanie knows them and is used to them as Katie or whatever, or what was, what was the choice behind that? Yeah, it just became, 
Right. It was a very practical reason just to make it easy for them to, you know, because it's not going to make sense to, for my sister to be, you know, for them to be called something else in a scene and my sister's supposed to react. It just, it just seemed like I'm just going to call everyone their normal names and that, that'll be much easier. Yeah. Right. Um, did, uh, did the, uh, the people who worked at the center, were those actually the, uh, the employees of the center or were they actors? Yeah. 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 So basically in the story, you only see three actors, the main character, Katie, um, Larry Fezzedon, who plays the cult leader. And then there's a guy who runs the, uh, meat processor. He's an actor. He actually Mm -hmm. had a whole subplot that was cut out of the movie and, and so anyway, so those are the only three actors. Everyone else in it are, you know, just normal people, you know, or people who work in those places where where the main character goes. And that, and that was, you know, for one, I didn't want actors in there trying to pretend that they were also an aide for, you know, Stephanie and the other ones like her because it, they wouldn't know how to react. They wouldn't ha- be so relaxed about it. And it just gave all those things more realistic, you know, feeling, you know, that I was, that I was trying to go for. Yeah, it really did. Chad, have you have you ever seen The Ranger or heard of it? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. Well, the director of that, she was on my show last year, and she said, and I quote, you're not really an independent horror film director until you have Larry Fessenden in or killed in your film. <laughs> So you're right. officially an independent horror film director now. Oh yeah, well I mean Larry was in my in Jugface as well, so yeah, he uh, I, so I've used him twice. I mean really when um, when my producer was sending me emails about who we're talking about for different actors, you know, different roles in Jugface. When when he sent me the email, it says, what do you think about offering um, Larry Fezzedin? Because we were thinking about him for two different roles the role of the potter or the role of the father Sustin. And I just like flipped out because I'd been a huge you know, fan of Larry Larry's. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is going to be awesome. If he accepts to do, you know, one of these roles. He's such a naturalistic yeah. actor too. Yeah. And that's another one I missed there, Tony. I wish I would have. That is uh, Larry's Frankenstein film. Damn it. Yeah. You picked a good day to go to the KHF this year. Besides your film playing. Yeah, there there seemed like there were some good selections there this year. Did you get to see well, most of them, Chad? It was uh, The Girl on the Third Floor, his film, uh, Bliss, VHF, and Festin's Frankenstein movie. Yeah, I mean, I watched, I think, 14 features that weekend. Nice. Or that week, yeah. Yeah. It was probably yeah, I'm all about watching that time they got to your questionnaire. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought what was it was the, uh, and it was awesome. What was the audience response like to Dementor this year at KHF? Um, well... Uh, so it, it only played once before. It premiered at the National Film Festival the week before, 
and that had two screenings. But most of those that audience was people that that they knew me or they're part of the, the film, or they they were just more aware of this, you know. So that what really wasn't like a good you know, barometer for me about how people ma- might react to the movie, you know. But then we go to Knoxville. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this is a true horror audience. Like, this is going to be awesome. This is how it's going to, you know, this is how it should be viewed in a way. And it was, it sounded great. It looked amazing. And I think it was probably a 50-50 split, maybe, about what people thought about it. Because I think some people were just not ready for a more serious horror movie, you know. And they weren't ready for the images of the you know Stephanie and the other people that had disabilities to be like in close up and just they couldn't relax at all and laugh at the funny moments because they just didn't know how you know they're not used to seeing images like that so I think you had people that really dug it the whole time and just were completely open to it and then other people that just you know I think we had a couple people walk out we definitely had a bunch of people that were getting up, like rustling around, because right? I think because the movie is pretty intense, and it was definitely mm-hmm. in that theater. And so I think, it, yeah, I think it it pushed people to the to their limits and kind of you know, so they either really dug it or they really didn't like it. And then if anyone was in the middle, then the way it ends, I think like you know that shifted people one way or another, you know, as well because it's. It's it's oh, fairly dark and, and also abstract. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I don't really go go <laughs> oh, into many stories this to please everybody. I've ever heard or seen anybody walk out of besides me and Red Christmas and Evil Dead Four. <laughs> yeah, I could I could see this being a movie that would divide audiences, but hey, that's what you know challenging cinema is all about and in my opinion is is pushing things for stuff well, you haven't seen before yeah mm-hmm. well you know when i see a film uh, or i see it reviewed or anything like that and you have that delineation people who love it and people who, i immediately want to see it because i want to make my own decision hell yeah right. there's a line in a dolomite is my name where they're in the limousine going to the movie, and they're reading reviews of Dolomite. Yeah. And one of them says, this movie is not fit for a blind dog to see. It's vulgar, crass, and disgusting. And Rudy Raymore, <laughs> Andy Murphy goes, that's the review I want. And he said, why? People who want to go to want to go to see. Why is this movie so crude and disgusting? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's provocative that way, just like in the in that same film where he's doing the devil stamps on the records, and he's saying, "I want it to make it look illegal. I want it to make make it look like people shouldn't be watching this, or shouldn't be listening yeah. to this." <laughs> well, but, you know, yeah, and I for mean, me, I, I want to give people an experience they haven't seen before, and uh, you know that that and that's what I want to see when I go to the movies as well. So um, I don't know if, if it's just because I'm at this point now where I'm just tired of standard horror movies and I kind of just want to see it pushed in different directions. And even, even with Jack Face, it wasn't really standard, you know. Like pe- Some right. people would argue with me about it if it even was a horror movie or not. 
you know, and I was just like, yeah. <laughs> and so many. Anyway, well, with the fast I don't know, food scene nowadays, you don't have to worry about pleasing the big distributors. You can just get it out on the festival scene and get it seen pretty much wide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chad, I wanted to ask, um, with regards, I know we're only talking about two features in your filmography so far, but um, do, what is your, uh, I, I hate to ask this question, but your influences as far as horror goes, because you, like me, seem to have an affinity for this backwoods folk horror. I don't know if you're a Manly Wade Wellman fan or not, but your your work really reminds me of a lot of his stories. Uh, you know, I just grew up in a in not necessarily these environments, but you know, a small southern town, and um, hey, was always into horror movies. Ass. How old am I? I'm I'm yeah. 43. Oh, um, well, you you still around when the local library still had the Silver John stories in the library? <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean. As far as, like, horror reference, you know, of course, Lovecraft, um, some Southern Gothic literature, and then, you know, really just all horror movies and just my – I don't I, – you know, it's it's kind of weird because I don't like to say, okay, I was so influenced by Stephen King or something like that. Like, I was trying to do that because I wasn't. Um, but, I don't know, the peculiarities of my – just environment that I grew up in, I think has a big, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of a big deal to me. And I think that's why all of my stuff really kind of falls into the uh, folk horror, you know, genre. Cause just, you know, that's what I was around to a certain degree. Not exactly, you know, yeah, they make, they like make that. you grow but, up weird in Tennessee. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a small town. There's, you know, church, uh, you know, snake handling churches, one of my good friends' mother was part of a church where she had to speak in tongues when she turned, you know, 14. So I was kind of around all these, like, just odd, you know, kind of, you know, bent to uh, uh, Christianity. So I don't know. That yeah. affected me, apparently. Well, it certainly would, I would think. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you're a product of what you see and what you experience. And, and if you're an artist, you're going to to uh, reflect that in your work, right? And sadly, I didn't hear about Manly Wade Wellman uh, Tony until I got uh, issue of Psychotronic in the er- a little bit early '90s, where they talked about his stories and the movie. Yeah, that's about the same time I heard about him. Only I, uh, I, I read my first Wellman story in. Uh, college class actually in probably 91 or 92 I took a college class called uh, uh, Horror and the Supernatural in American Literature and I read the, I read a Silver John story and it completely blew me away so of course I started hitting all the used bookstores finding all the pulp paperbacks I could of his work and uh, like both I mean, there's other authors that, that tread the same grounds and things like that, so I don't want to, like, pin it all on, on Wellman yeah. that uh, Chad's movies remind me of. But um, in, in, in particular, actually, Dementor, if, if somebody were to ask me the overall 
comparison I might make is it, I would probably say Dementor feels like a uh, a full horror version or full horror version with the kind of vibe of uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene, um, where you're just kind of dropped into this person's psyche and and you have to just sit and learn of what's come before and the whole aspect of of the unreliable narrator, so to speak, uh, because she does suffer from. Uh, from broken memories and things like that. So you're, you're just never, nothing's handed to you on a silver platter. And that is what draws me in so much is your, the, the photography keeps you in the moment, the score, like in, it, it feels like an intrusion on your thoughts. And so you're almost, you're almost with Katie the entire time sharing her confusion and her perceptions. And it just, it's, it's, it's so effective being told that way as you could tell this same story in a much more traditional sense and it wouldn't be nearly as interesting or as intriguing because it would, it would just be a linear, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But as it is, it becomes this beautiful character piece where you are sharing the, the discomfort, trauma and fears of the main character. Oh man, you guys gotta see this movie. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you what. Um, in hearing this, and again, please, please know that I've not seen uh, Dementor, but it reminds me what you're describing as what Cronenberg did with Spider. In terms of there, yeah, that's an apt comparison, right? Uh, which absolutely now I have to see it. <laughs> no question. Yeah, you really do because that <laughs> sense of false memories, and not only just memories. But but experiences because he because that character in that movie actually feels that he's experienced that. It's not until the layers are ripped away that the audience actually knows what happens. Yeah. Right. And in Jug Face Carl, you like this? It's like you walk into the middle of the story about this town, and there's no time for you to get any of the backstory before you're caught up in the whirlwind. Oh, cool, right. then it's Buckaroo Banzai, the horror movie. <laughs> yeah, a little like that. Well, Chad, that'll be the first and only time you probably hear that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he has me on, guys. Sorry. I think those were thoughts. But it just seems to so, me you said that with the music earlier that a lot of reviewers nowadays really hate movies that try to go for sensory overload. Yeah, I, I mean, this call this one sensory overload. It's almost, it, like I said, it's almost like something creeping up on you the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm talking movies, about where he said the music was too much. The music was too much. Some of the reviews, yeah, said it got annoying or whatever. Because it is, the way the music kind of, like, happened uh it's the same composer from jug face uh yeah. with jug face it was a process of like me telling him references and, and the music not working and me finally saying uh, yeah telling him the right reference and then it clicking and he writes the main theme and then he can base off all the other scenes off of that uh one theme and so then when this 
movie, you know, came about, I was telling him again references that weren't leading to the right place. And then I don't even remember the maybe it was under the skin was the last reference. And then that clicked in his mind, okay, I know what to do, but he didn't do the score for the entire movie. He instead created three <laughs> songs that were actually different tempos and that were very similar. And he gave me the stems of those tracks. And then I went through the entire movie and kind of made sort of a newer, a different thing based on those three tracks. And then did, you know, place those stems throughout the movie as I saw fit. So it was a completely Uh. different kind of experience. And maybe the weirdness of it is, and the repetition because, well, only really have three songs <laughs> that I'm mixing and matching the parts between. So it became almost like part of the sound design process instead of a traditional score by Sean Spillane. Right. Totally. It's totally his uh, music, but messed with by me throughout the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Cause I did the oh, sound wow. as, as well. Nice. Which, and that which was, was really yeah, fun, that was a but, huge part of it. Right, yeah. In the beginning, I thought, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? Because, you know, I do have some background in music, but I was still like, you know, good grief. I'm going to do it for the whole movie. But it (laughs) it took me about two months of working with it. But it was really rewarding. It was really, really, really cool. It was fun. And you did the editing yourself as well, right? Right, yeah. Um, You know, I edited you know, learned to edit in college and I had edited a rough uh, draft of, you know, a cut of uh, Jug Face as well. Um, we had, I had gotten a cut of just the uh, wides. It was, it's called an assembly edit, the first edit you get. And for, you know, the, just to see how the scenes stack up, the editor had used just the wide shots. And, you know, uh-huh. when you tell a story visually, you're, you, you never just sit in a wide, you're, you're punching in for emotion and everything. So to me, uh, you know, that wasn't obviously into him too. That wasn't really how the edit was going to be, but it freaked me out. And I took one weekend and edited the whole movie together, you know, before I went down to work with the uh, editor. So then he had an understanding of, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And then we kind of worked from there. So, you know, but I hadn't edited anything since, 2012 <laughs> and, and but then oh, wow. I, I was going to have an editor on this and but he was having difficulties with his schedule and so once I started just working with the scenes I just realized I'm not going to be able to give this to anybody I'm not going to be able to tell anybody how this should be how this should fit together I'm just going to have to fill it out myself you know particularly with the weird flashbacks and things like that. So I just kind of realized that uh, I was going to be the editor after, you know, after about a week, Jeff wedding, the DP is like, he's like, you know, you're going to be the one you're going to turn into the editor of this. Right. I was like, no, I'm not (laughs) editing this. He's like, no, you're probably going to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Jeff, he knows things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, with, uh, with regards to going back to jug face, um, now, did you do uh, Organ Grinder exclusively to basically prove to Vanden Houten that you could be a director, or was that something you had planned already? Well, uh, once I had written 
the, the script for Jug Face, I was like, okay, I'm going to enter it into all these competitions. I felt like it was pretty good and it would be like, you know, a finalist. And then I could show uh, that to investors locally. But I was like, but I need a short as well. And so I wrote Organ Grinder with the intention of shooting it, you know, right about the time when I was going to be hearing from these different festivals. And it just lined up perfectly where Jug Face won the, the um, slam dances, uh, you know, writing competition. And within the next week, I had called up um, Andrew Van Houten about it, about the, you know, to read the script. And anyway, and he, you know, said, okay, well, do you have something that I can see as far as directing? And I said, well, actually, this weekend coming up, I'm going to be shooting this short. And he's like, okay, great. Then, you know, when you're done with that, send it to me. And so on the day that I sent him the short, he said, okay, yeah, we're going to make this movie. Because he had read the script by then, liked it, and also had Sean Bridgers, who played Dewey the Potter, and he liked and wanted to play the role. So it's like these things had lined up in the few weeks that I was making the short. So it wasn't exactly for Andrew, but it was for the, you know, the, the be, you know, showed with the screenplay. Right. So the stars just kind of aligned nicely that way. Yeah. 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 It was, yeah. And then we were shooting, you know, jug face five months later, four months later. So it was really quick and not, not, and that kind of <laughs> didn't ruin me, but it kind of, uh, it's not, that's not how movies generally happen. You know, you win an award in, <laughs> in November, then in December, you're told you're going to make the movie. And in April, you're making the movie. And then by the next year, you're it's out. We're premiering back at you know Slamdance, so it was just a whirlwind. It was an amazing experience for sure. But then after that, it was like you know I was writing, I've been writing scripts, trying to get funding for them, and wondering why in the world it's taking so long and what people's problem are. Because like, hey, I made this crazy movie and we did it really quickly, and then hey, it came out. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. I think the real the real thing about uh, you know the industry, if I hadn't won uh, that competition with that screenplay, it would have probably never gotten read by the people you know and Andrew or whoever, and probably would never have been made. But once someone you know has stuck their neck out for it, uh, then then that made people pay attention, and then you know people were comfortable with making it. Yeah. Well, there were did, a lot uh, of films did, that. Uh, oh came out during the time of Jug Face come out, that it was when DVD was pretty much at its peak, and every company was looking for filler titles and new titles and new titles. So any movie that came out, if it looked halfway decent shot, it got out on DVD, as we sadly found out if you did any reviews, right, Tony? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's Part of being a movie lover is weeding through the piles to find the good stuff. Absolutely right. <laughs> did uh, did Jugface work out well for you as as a calling card to help get Dementor made? <laughs> uh, no, I mean not at all. <laughs> I mean I'm, no? I made Dementor. Oh. I made Dementor on my own. That was completely so self funded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, I kind well, of doubled down on on the weird, and just because, like, like I said, I had tried so long with other scripts, 
and just was always getting pushed back about the weirdness, you know. And I'm like, but that's what I want to see. That's that's what I want to make. And I had moved with my wife and daughter out to LA actually for a year, and you know, but only lasted a year, and had moved back to Tennessee, and was kind of at this point of like, I have to have a movie now. What can I do myself? And like I said, I'd had this idea about building a horror movie around my sister, Stephanie. And so I was like, okay, that, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I've, I asked a few people, is this too crazy? Like uh, one of my, you know, Lucky McKee, I, he was one of the people that I asked, you know, and, uh, and Jeff Wedding, you know, like, is this, does this sound like a good idea first or am I too crazy? And, you know, they both agreed that it, it seemed like a very cool uh, idea and I should try to write it. And before I even had it written or had even started the screenplay, I asked Katie, who was then Dementor, the main actress, to, to be in a role. I said, look, I'm going to be writing this screenplay. This is what it's about. Even though in my pitch to her, I had more uh, had a redemption kind of ending instead of the ending that's in the actual story. Without, mm-hmm. without giving it away but uh so yes yeah, so i just kind of decided to uh you know wing it myself and and see what happens wow well me and uh carl have this thing and carl know what i'm talking about it's like we look at some movies and we're like did you that skit with uh bill murray and uh steve martin from 1970s where it's just what the hell is it? Going. Yeah, what the fuck is that? Yeah, what the hell is that? What the hell is that? Oh, I know <laughs> what it is. I know it. What the hell is that? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, uh, when I see a film like that, and I'm surprised, and 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 that that's exactly what I'm looking for because, you know, we keep you know you keep talking, Chad, about about, you know, how everything is homogenized and you do something different and trying to sell that. That's what, what I want to see. So it's filmmakers like you or, or uh, Ricky Bates or, you know, the people that surprise me and make me say, what the hell is that? That's who I That's the films I want to see. But the problem yeah. is, isn't enough for us. <laughs> well, at least a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, people with the money seem to think there's not enough of us, but well, I mean, which, which leads it, me. It, sorry, I was go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, and I understand it from their point of view. It's you know, it's they're expensive, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, what 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 was in there? So they don't want to risk you know their money. They want to actually make money with it because it is an industry. It is a business. But what was weird is that. I was getting that same pushback on the in the ultra low budget level. That's what I just can't understand. Weird. Like, why in why in the world would you do something just like it's like you're competing with the larger horror movies. You're doing you want to do the same thing but with less budget. And to me that makes no sense. Like like you should do these wild ideas so that they will go out into the world and have a life of their own. But the problem with all that is it's it's the distributors. And so they're the next level of control, you know, from the producers. The distributors don't want the weird things either. 
and they will market, you know, they can, they can market the stuff that's, you know, whatever the usual horror movies are. And they figured out kind of their equations of, of what will sell and how much money they will get back by releasing it. So it's, yeah. So anyway, Speaking so it's, of which, for me, it's frustrating. Speaking of which, are you, uh, are you, since you basically, this is an entirely self-funded self-produced movie. Are you planning on like Jeff Wedding's doing with his new film, Tennessee Gothic? Are you planning on doing self-distribution with this? No, I mean, I'll, I'll probably still try to go through the normal kind of ranks. Um, I'll probably end up signing with a sales agent and they'll work by selling it to the different territories and to the different, you know, distributors and things like that. So yeah, I'm still going to go down the normal route, I guess, you know, where, where Jeff has gone pretty much the total indie way. Well, mm-hmm. he can I'm do trying it something a little bit different. Figured out rule one. Booby sale. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> But, yeah, I can name you two, three weird things that indie films have happened recently. It's like uh, Mike Mendez's Big Ass Spider. Mm-hmm. When it hit Walmart, they changed the title to Big Ass Spider. Right. <laughs> and the movie Satanic Panic that came out this year. Uh-huh. If you see it on Walmart, it's just called Panic. Oh, Really? <laughs> And Deathgasm wow. was changed to heavy metal horror. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah. sometimes you got to make those sacrifices if you want to get if you want to get in on shelves. Yeah, I mean, and I understand that to a certain degree, but um, I don't know. The classic no, I uh, story of I that is... Uh, Ken Russell's movie Whore. If uh, mm-hmm. if you saw that movie in Blockbuster or back in the day when grocery stores rented movies, instead of being called Whore, it was it was called If You Can't Say It, See It. There were three versions that were called Whore. Oh wow! There was one that just said You Know What It Is, and one that was <laughs> W asterisk asterisk R E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favorite, and I'd love to get a VHS cover of this, but they're super expensive, uh, is the one that says, if you can't say it, see it. <laughs> I love that. Great title. <laughs> Great movie, too. Yeah, oh yeah. Sadly still unavailable. Yep. There, I mean, it just seems like anything that isn't, well, look at Kuzo. The only way to get that on DVD is go to uh, the guy who directed its concerts. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's the only way to do it. Did... Really? You can't just go buy that on Amazon? No. Oh, I you can either watch that. it on Shutter or go to the guy's concerts. Huh. That's, that's bizarre. But I mean, that is that would be a hard movie to sell to a distributor. Oh, by the way, we love it. I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna love that film. 
I love and that was a great film to watch with KHF. There are certain scenes where the whole audience, you could just hear them break. Like the scene with George oh, yeah. Clinton. The whole audience was like, ooh, ah, ah. <laughs> and then at the end scene, there was like this black guy that just kept going after it started. Oh, shit, shit. Oh, God, no, shit, God, no, shit. <laughs> And you all did that movie broke somebody, man. Your movie broke. But but isn't that what we really want? It was made to do that. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) seriously, isn't that what we really want? I mean, you know, there's this whole brouhaha with uh, uh, you know Marvel and and and, uh, Scorsese and all that sort of stuff. But but you know what? Some of us want to see something so outrageous, but well done, that 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 it's different, you know. And and I think yeah. that's the one one of the wonderful things about the horror renaissance that we're in right now is that you have directors like yourself, and that doing something off the beaten track that people haven't done. And for those of us, and, and Tony, you know, I mean, how how jaded can you be by seeing all these films and and that or you or brian and then suddenly seeing a breath of fresh air like chuck face i mean seriously oh that's that's what we live for man i mean exactly you, you that's the whole point as much as you can and then when you find those gems they're just they're so precious and i want to go take a take a sidebar here real quick about this whole marvel scorsese brouhaha this this is completely manufactured by the people who do these, uh, by the interviewers who do these mile-a-minute press junkets, and they ask people like Scorsese stupid questions like, what do you think about Marvel films? And then they use right. it as a headline for clickbait. This is not Scorsese right. going out on a campaign against Marvel. It is these interviewers trying to get clicks by having sensationalistic headlines from dumb questions. Right. My favorite that one is, ever. What are you talking about? Chad's movie. <laughs> What's that? Is uh, it was on an interview with Takashi Miyake over in Japan, <laughs> and Kill Bill was just opening uh-huh. over there, and they said, "What yeah. do you think about yeah. Quentin Tarantino?" And Miyake said, "Fuck Tarantino. What about Takashi Miyake?" <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> When in fact, Miyuki just loves Tarantino, but you know, yeah. <laughs> still. Um, and speaking of which, back to Chad's film. Um, the uh, now I'm sure you have uh, a good amount of uh, festival screenings still lined up, don't you? Coming up soon. Right next year, yeah. Oh, no more for this year. Right. Oh, darn. Kind of things wind down now, and so they kind of pick back up next year. Gotcha. Well, it's uh, it's definitely going to be reviewed in the December issue of Wank's Chop, so hopefully that'll help get a few people buzzing about it. Maybe it'll encourage them to go to a festival to check it out. Well, I'll be back in a second, guys. I got to go update the betting charts. Everyone who bet in November has got to lost their money now. Oh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, Tony knows what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what, the next uh, festival it's uh, slated to play in? Um, you know what? I don't know yet, so I'm still waiting to hear back from them. So, but it'll be gotcha. something going on for sure. And uh, you know, 
as we get closer to it. What uh, uh which Wayne's chop is Jug Face in? Uh, that was a mistake on Steve's part. That wasn't a uh, that wasn't a Wings Chop review. Uh, that oh, okay. was an online review. That was an online review I did oh. uh, for it. But um, I'm I'm still intend to review Jugface just because it's one of my favorite full horror movies of all time. I just it hasn't made it into the magazine yet. Uh, okay. Instead of rushing out an interview with it, why don't you do a Take a little time and do a dual article with both of his films reviewed. I could do that if uh, Chad would be willing maybe to accompany with it with an interview. Feel free to say no. I won't be butthurt. No, sure. Of course. Okay. I'm open well, to whatever. Maybe we should do that. Do a, little, uh, do a little feature article in the March issue and, uh, and have an interview with the review of both films if that sounds appealing to you at all. Yeah, of course. Sure. All right, cool. Well, I'll contact you about that then. Okay. Thanks a lot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I do I really love appreciate... that you're... Go ahead. What's that, Steve? No, go ahead. Oh, I was just I was just saying I appreciate everybody letting me network here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, well what's planning the, what's the show for? Sorry. I wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for Wayne's job. <laughs> well, hell, we love having you. It's uh it's one of the cool things about, you know, just meeting some of our some of our staff that have just they you know, a lot of what we print is blind submissions from people we've never met or heard of before that just like, I love this movie and I want to write about it. Would you print this? And you read it and there's just it's so full of passion and insight and that's Steve's started uh, giving us these Steve's video store articles and they're, it just had such a cool take on it because, you know, like-minded loves from the rest of the wings chop staff. And it just, it's, it's made a very nice little family for us and readers seem to dig it. So that's always nice. Yeah. Closer to the Manson family than your family and jug face, but let's not get into what Tony makes us do it after dark. Yeah, that's strictly off the strictly off the book. <laughs> and I do more of the uh, uh, podcast than that. I'm not so much a writer, but but I've been working with Steve, and and again, it was Steve that brought me into this. So, so you know, I have a great love of Wings Chop and what they do. Absolutely. And I've been going to uh, KH Knoxville Horror Fest since they pretty much started doing their big showings. And anyone they approve of, I approve of because William has great taste. Yeah, that's a really, really well curated festival. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree for sure. And it seems to really be yeah, growing. Too bad it? you can't make it down there one year, Tony. Yeah, not on my current salary, but maybe one day. Well, you can't even make it to the ones in <laughs> Vegas, sadly. <laughs> yeah, half the time. I uh, I fortunately do get to go to Sin City Horror Fest, but uh, but that you know with my day job schedule that can be kind of rough to arrange. But damn it, I I just have to you know sometimes fake my own death or something like that, but it works out. But I'm glad that you got the got your movie 
you got your first reel showing with the fans at KHF because everyone who pays $300 a ticket for the weekend there and shows up on Sunday is truly the hardcore crowd and a good view of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's that's what I love about festivals is you're not just dealing with the average movie-going public. You're dealing with dedicated film lovers. Yeah. And they're the, just the most fun people to interact with and talk to because they're they're like us. Right. Okay, now I ask you, what are your guys, what, Ted, what is your favorite uh, folk horror film that you've ever seen? Uh, probably The Wicker Man, I guess. It's kind of like the top, the the king of all of them to me is probably the Wicker Man. I can't talk about the what Wicker about? Man because I've probably already talked about it on how many podcasts now, Carl? Oh my God! We do a <laughs> we do a May Day yeah. podcast every year on the Wicker Man. This <laughs> <laughs> year, oh, okay. Here's yeah, Sergeant Howie Memorial Day Six so years. is that your favorite as well, Steve? What? Is that your favorite as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, it's kind uh, of funny because I don't, I don't seek out folk horror at all, really. I mean, I just try to watch any and everything. So it's kind of funny for you to be like, well, what's your favorite? I'm thinking... I don't know. Like, and I'm like, oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Wicker Man, of course. But it's odd that I don't really, you know, search out those things that that I do, I guess, that I'm similar to. Well, you know, well you know, like if, Carl was saying, you know, you do, you do what you love and you do things that are a product of your environment and interests and – yeah. Even right. though you're not necessarily a full core or hound, you just it kind of just falls in there. Well, I think it took a long time, but I would watch movies and I would I would want so bad to make a movie like that movie, and then I finally realized I would never be able to do that. But that mm-hmm. same can be said for those people making a movie like I would make, and so I just had to kind of become comfortable with whatever it is that I do, you know, my uniqueness of yeah, what the story I'm trying to tell. one person out there that's going to watch Jug Face and is going to go, I want to make a movie just like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. But well, it's, a, it's a, definitely a subgenre that I've always loved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I know, as far I as... Mean, he's, He's the one I first we started talking about raving about uh, Field in England and then uh, the Silver John movie and then the Wicker Man and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wakewood and uh, or Killers. more recently. Oh, yeah, or uh, The Witch or Border. I mean, there's so many great ones out there. Uh, November. Um, oh, I love November. This, November, I just yeah. freaking love have you seen Border yet, Carl? The Swedish no, film? I have not. No. It's it's 
it's on Hulu right now. Uh, I would highly recommend going out of your way to see it. It's pretty amazing. Okay. Okay. I, I will the win do... yet? The win? Yeah. No, I haven't seen that one yet. It's on my list. Though. Oh, that one's really good. And that's another Is one that like that films that really messes with you with the sound mix because it always has the wind blowing in almost every scene. Mm-hmm. It rarely has a score, and the way it's cut, it's not. It tells a linear story, but it's cut in a way where it doesn't tell it in linear fashion. Mm, cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Hollow is another one that I really like too. The I believe it was, was it an Irish English co-production from uh, yeah twenty fifteen or so. That one was that one was a nice one too, right? Yeah, but yeah, and I think I think part of the great appeal. Thing. Yeah, and I think part of the great appeal about this subgenre to me is it's so otherworldly and and yet familiar in so many ways. It's like when you first get uh, exposed to the. Uh, the horror films from another culture like Korea or Japan, part of their mm-hmm. part of the fact that makes them so much scarier than what we're used to is that if they stem from cultures that have been around for centuries that are so much different than ours. And with films like, you know, Jug Face and Dementor, even though they're not specifically based on a, a specific American mythology, they have that same feel of this is this is the mythology or religion of a, of a world that I've never been invited to look at. And Mm -hmm. that, that aspect of being the outsider being allowed to peek in gives you that kind of creepy voyeuristic feel of this exists. And it's something that none of us have ever been privy to because it's so tight and encapsulated. And it's, it's, it really just adds to the, the creepiness of it. Well, well, I need to jump in here for a second. Um, so anyway, Stephen will tell you, and, and so will Tony, uh, uh, that you know when it comes to religion and films, this is something I, I dig into a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I'm a church organist, all that sort of stuff, right? But anyway, the the, the point is, it's the fascination of the structure of it. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. what? You know, and 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 as you dig and you start to see, you see the the uh, connections in that, it can really, really screw up your whole thought about what you know mythology, what religion is, and 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 that to me is always a part of folklore. That you have to have that element of 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 different mythology. That something is out there that you need to be aware of. Or afraid of, or sacrificed to, or whatever the case would be. Right, and, and, I, and like to me, it's little. Go ahead. Like, little things like when, when Chad said, uh, you know, just so casually, Chad said, "Yeah, there's a snake handling church in my town." That is just, you know, I'm I'm from the West, so to me, that is just so foreign and exotic and intriguing and scary. And, and Chad's <laughs> like, "Yeah, it's down the street." It's also yeah, stupid, but like, that's beside yeah, the point. He must have posted the article. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Imagine me handling a snake. Uh, no. 
Not happy. <laughs> Oh, God, no, God, no. <laughs> ah. Oh, look, it's got its hat to something that it shouldn't be. Oh, good God. <laughs> but this is the best way to put it. If you love, like, a Run of the Arrows, The Wicker Man, any movies that deal with a sincere sense of duty and you having to do your duty no matter what the price, if you love that type of film... You will love Jug Face. Yeah, well put. Because <laughs> that's really at its heart what Jug Face's plot line centers around is is uh, duty known yet not necessarily followed. Oh, well, yeah, well, the funny thing is, I think what was in my brain at the time was my I had, I had a uh, child and I kind of after about a year it kind of dawned on me that I was like wait I can't go and do crazy things anymore you know I'm in charge of this child and so in a way that was kind of like the essence of my emotions for when I started writing this story about this girl who was trapped in her kind of predicament you know so it came from having a child myself. <laughs> and actually, I would take my daughter because my wife went back to work and I was at home trying to write. And I would move my daughter around to different like stations I had in my office and try to, you know, do as much work as I could. And then by the time she turned one, she wasn't napping as much. And I realized I'm never going to get any writing done. So we started <laughs> taking her to like uh, what was called mommy's day out, which is like just daycare for a couple hours a day. And it was during those hours when I would go to this uh, coffee shop and, and wrote jug face. <laughs> oh, wow. So was, Isn't it ironic? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cat has a baby. He writes jug face. David Lynch has a baby. He writes a racer head. Well, the mentor is kind of, you know, the ideas and, and that, this doesn't really spoil anything, but it's sort of like, you know, the idea, one of the ideas is like how, at what point does helping hurt? And even within the context of my sister, um, you know, the state has, has come by, you know, and, will make policies every year to, you know, for their, you know, the betterment of their existence. Right. But at times mm-hmm. they come in way too heavy handed and they do things that just don't make any sense. So like recently there was a thing where they decided, okay, well, we don't want people like my sister to be away from the community and just put off someplace. So they decided, okay, the clients have to be out of the center for six hours a day every day so that meant when they arrived at eight at nine o'clock they had they have to leave and they have to be gone till three and then they can come back for an hour and then go home for the night but what happens is that that sounds like oh that's a great idea you get them into the community but it's way too harsh for a lot of their mobility and just for Mm -hmm. just to be realistic but depending on you know the weather depending on actually small towns and how many things there are to actually do um, and so it's just – and what would happen with my sister and other clients in her house during the weekend, they will – they'll just let them sleep because they're so exhausted 
from the week of being drug around, you know, drug into the right, community right. for their for their betterment. But is that really better? <laughs> so there was kind of yeah, like that kernel in my brain. And then also what was very strange about this whole story, I wrote it not necessarily thinking about that. And I wrote the story, and as I would write, I would not really read what I had written before. So then when I got to the end, I had a couple different endings, and then it became very clear what the ending was show what it should be. But I wasn't really comfortable about what it was saying. So then, oddly enough, I was like, I went to do yoga, which is really funny, but because I used to be really into that. But and after at the end of a yoga class, you're just supposed to not be thinking about anything. That's the whole point. But of course, I, for, for whatever reason, in my brain, I was subconsciously thinking about Dementor, and it struck me like what it meant to me, what ideas were in it that besides the, the obvious ones like with the, my sister, but it was really about me, my reaction to social media, which <laughs> sounds so bizarre, but it's like that there are these groups of people that are so passionate about their belief systems that they don't know if those ideas are actually harmful or not. And then, so that it's, I was like, Oh, this is, this is a whole movie about Twitter that I just wrote. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting uh, analogy because, you know, which, people which have their own perspective. The movie, yeah. Right. Yeah. But people have their own perspectives and their own experiences and they don't, they're so passionate or encapsulated by them that they don't realize they don't apply to every foreign situation that they encounter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like everyone that says, I want something new in horror. I want something new in horror. And then when something new comes out, why can't they just make it like the new stuff that I've already seen? Yeah, yeah. that old chestnut. <laughs> yep But yeah I'm disabled myself And the best way to describe it Is that when I was first going to get my disability The woman at the desk told me this And I've told this story before She looked at me and said You know if you get a woman pregnant You'll get your disability a whole lot quicker Oh good lord Whoa so Woman wow. in the eye said, "Ma'am, if you know a woman I can knock up within the next thirty minutes, I would be obliged to." <laughs> That's funny. Wow. I, I basically had the same thing happen to me. To deal with. Yeah. I I was Crazy. living in a very very uh, uh, backwards town called Bradford, Pennsylvania, and I just moved there back from New York City to take over my dad's store, and so I went to register to vote. And so I, I went in, very much a Republican area, and I went in and I said, I want to register Democrat, and the woman looked at me like, are you sure? <laughs> wow. Are you making this decision of your own volition? <laughs> yes. If Link someone is threatening you, we can call the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to ask one more question about uh, Dementor with regards to the differences in the in the production versus what the Jugface experience was like. Um, like it seemed to me that Jugface had 
even for such a short shooting schedule, which I believe was 17 days, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, that's correct. That it had that it had a fair amount of pre-production and set building and things like that that had to really happen in a short amount of time. Um, but with regards to Dementor, was it was it a lot less trying in that regard? Were you able to use locations as is, or did you do a lot of uh, building and set dressing beforehand? Uh, we, uh, yeah, I still had a set designer, um, this girl, lady Kellyanne Ross, who's really who was on Jugface as well. So, yeah, there was definitely less uh, need for that with uh, Dementor because we we're just using you know the realness of these spaces. Uh, so yeah, and then even with uh, Jugface, you know, it was really just like the week before or not. I think I, myself and two other friends, we dug the pit, like rented the the digger, and someone operated it and the backhoe, I guess. And I was the one, uh, you know, hauling away the dirt, and you know that would be off camera in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> and then actually wow. the wise, yeah. And actually, I cleaned out the bottom of the pit because we hit rock. So the pit would have been a lot deeper, but after about six feet, we hit like you know, stone. So we we stopped there. But uh, and then with uh, yeah, then then actually, I was one of the three people who cleaned out uh, Dewise shack where he was making the pottery because it was full like broken windows yeah. and. All you did that in a so. week? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Because I saw that. Yeah, I saw the pictures of it before it got dressed as the wise house. And man, that I was mean, it was a probably mess. a week, a week or two. But really, no one showed up. But but maybe you know the week before the the making of it, and that's kind of when everything kind of clicked into gear. But I was already doing stuff because I I was the one who actually found all those locations for Jugface as well. Since I was here, you know, so I, I did all that leg work. So, like, and but course, I, I believe like I said, two or three of the locations were on the same person's property, right? Right, right. Well, they were very close, like Dewey's house and Dewey's, uh the potter's uh, little uh, shack where he made the pottery. That was one property, and it was right next to the creek. And and then which is another property and that that one had the trailer on it which was absolutely perfect. So we talk about like grandpa's four, trailer. Yeah, grandpa. Well, well, actually, no, not grandpa's. It's it's the main trailer where uh, she lived, where she sneaks oh, okay. out of. Yeah, that right. was right there. So we had all those kind of four locations basically kind of built up right there perfectly, and then we went to another location where grandpa's. Um, RV was, and then the pit was was uh, dug. So those and those were kind of the main ones. And then we we drove out to like where the store is and things like that. Okay, well, thank you both, Tony and uh, Chad, for being on. People, go see Jug Face if you haven't yet. It's good. You're looking for something new and good this Halloween. Go see it. And if Dementor comes to a festival near you, go see it. Make your choice. Is it? What do you think about it? And yeah, also, when people. it comes out next month, get Wings Chop and Wings Chop's holiday issue. Right? That'll Tony? be out at the end of December, yeah. 
And Carl, you but stay, the next... but thank you, Chad, for being on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for yeah, having thanks me. Thanks a lot, Chad. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, you can go back to re-editing there because me and Carl's got something we got to talk rhapsodic about for the next 30 minutes, right, Carl? Yeah, <laughs> sure, I can do that. Cool being. Oh, by the way, Tony, always good to hear yeah. from you and, and talk yeah. to you, man. Always Absolutely. a pleasure. Absolutely, always a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. I had a blast. And hope you enjoyed the break. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice break. And now, uh, within two weeks, you'll see Wang's Shop number twelve out on out on uh, Amazon, available to grab. So, I will be sure to holler about it loud as soon as it happens. Okay, and thank you very much, for both of you. Absolutely. Take care, you guys. Okay. All right. Carl. Steven. Can you tell me, what is the number one trending movie on Netflix this weekend? And also, what is the number one most watched movie among exploitation fans this weekend? Well, that would be my name is motherfucking Dolomite. My, yeah, Dolomite is my motherfucking name. And since that has really hit on Friday, you would not believe how much love it has gotten on Facebook and stuff from the exploitation fans. And Jen Wynorski shown the scene where they were talking about making uh, the writing the script, uh, Jerry Jones and Dolomite. Right. And he just captioned it. This really hit home for me. Yeah. Yes, finally. Why? No. Carl got to see it two weeks ago, lucky son bitch. The, the In a theater, mind you. In a theater. This is one, the Rudy Ray Moore biopic, and two, really the story of shooting a no budget film in the 70s. I'm basically shooting a no-budget film at any time, almost. You know, yeah. it's it's about you know having the passion to do it and finding ways to do it and being optimistic that you can get it done, and all that applies, of course, to Rudy Ray. Yeah. You know, in real life and in the film too. In real life, Rudy Ray Moore was did about everything. He uh, worked with the USO when he was drafted. He worked the Chitlin Circuit as a shake dancer, a blues singer, and contrary to the movie, he had put out two comedy albums before, uh, what is it, Eat Out More Often. Yeah, but they were not, they were not that type of comedy album, you know, that was, that was, he was being much more. No, you know, less profane. Let's put it that way. Much yeah. less profane. The closest he comes is the second album, which he did called The Dozens. Right. And that will come up to be very important as we get on into the interview. Right, Carl? The Dozens. This is true. And where we start the movie is where he is working in a famous... Oh, i got to ask you. How, much, how many tears and how hard did your dick get... Seeing that record store in the way it was oh, during the opening credits of that movie. Uh, that that you know, I mean, now I was never in a record store that had its own DJ uh, booth in it. 
yeah. nonetheless, seeing any record store, you know, makes me hard. Okay, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. it's Rule 34. Someone's going to jerk off to it. In, in this case, yeah, I will. I mean, just seeing <laughs> all that stuff, you're putting out Dick Gregory albums and Aretha Franklin. Oh, are you kidding? Oh. Yep. But yeah, it's so many point people. where he's working as uh, basically assistant manager in a, a record store. Everything that he used to do is pretty much dried up by now. His contemporaries, uh, Red Fox and LaWanda Page, are doing Sanford and Son by now, right? Yeah, yeah. 75 yep. they are. And yeah. he's just working as a record clerk, well, assistant manager in the record store. And he really does, and if you've ever read any interviews with him, he is honest about how low he was during that point, right? Right, exactly. And as he says, what happens to change his life, Carl? Well, what happens... Uh is that a hobo comes in and starts telling these stories, which are the old uh, southern folktales of, of, of this character Dolomite. And he realizes, Rudy Ray realizes the importance of that, and he's able to take that and develop this character that then becomes his persona. Yeah. He's like, if it were funny as hell when this guy's doing it, imagine if a professional is doing it. Right. And Eddie Murphy is perfect as Rudy Ray Moore in this movie. I didn't see one. Well, there's a couple of bits where I've seen Eddie Murphy because he couldn't sing like. Yeah, that's true. Ray. And, and, and the voice is just a little off, just a tiny bit. But he does such a good job, and we're being real nitpicky, okay? Let's face it. Yeah. My biggest nitpick about it is uh, there never was a black man in charge of black films at AIP. <laughs> no, but they, they do that for effect. But it's still not the best joke for you. Come on, that oh, scene God, had the yeah. best. If you know the movie, you'll get it. It's like, we're doing new films. It's like Cornbread Earl and Me. It's about a black man who gets a college degree and gets out of the ghetto. Now, doesn't that warm your heart? Yeah, but if you know and the movie. You know, uh, when he says, <laughs> ain't nobody want to see that shit. Cornbread Earl and Me was a flop, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> and it was because of the, how, what makes the joke funny, how psychotically insane wrong. The, wrong the mood change was of it. First yeah. two films is, yes, about the black guy. He plays basketball. He gets out of the ghetto. But yep. the day before he's supposed to leave by college... He gets shot dead by two racist cops, and the rest of the movie is about them dealing with his murder. Yep. (laughs) 
Yeah, have, have fun with that. Boy, that's a really uplifting, wonderful story. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you've seen how much of a vocal it's really got between the exploitation guys. Probably because a lot of them, Wynorski, uh, Jefferson Richards, uh, uh, Mark Savage, oh, yeah. they probably lived those stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, that's the one thing that's really coming through with this film is that it's crossing cultural boundaries. I just saw a post by a close friend of mine um, who who I call uh, She's My Cuz, and, and, and she just saw it and loved it. And so it's crossing, you know, boundaries as far as race, as far as anything. And, and it's... It's it's a story that you can really appreciate because it's about somebody who has a vision, who in in real life is a really good guy, or was a really good guy before. Yeah, he passed and away. if you listen to his comedy, is there any race jokes in him? No, no, no. He's just he's just gonna kick motherfucking ass against anybody. You know, there, there's yeah. no sense of race. But the thing is that uh, the, how it's portrayed his relationship with Lady Reed in the film yeah. is a wonderful relationship. And so there's there there's this this really good heart, and yet some of the most foul, filthy stuff you've ever heard on stand up. And it's yeah. wonderful. I mean, unlike uh, Red Fox and Richard Pryor. He didn't use the language to tell shock, you know. He didn't use it to tell jokes like they would in stories. Mm-hmm. No. He would just use it to talk shit. Yeah, and the thing you know is, he I mean? knew his audience. Yeah, he knew his yeah, audience, too. he knew his audience. That's what the movie really gets across. That's why I yeah. think this is a better movie than Ed Wood. Ed Wood never had an audience. It's just mm-hmm. that we started liking shitty movies. Right. But you know what? But you Rudy Ray Moore, he knew what his audience wanted, and he knew what would sell. And he put right. that on the, the play, Well, not only that, there's that line, you know, where where, where the movie executive says, says yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's only four blocks. And he says, yeah, but every city has those four blocks. Yeah, every city and I has sell it. To every one of those motherfuckers, and the record yeah, company. He's like, mm-hmm. I, "You think this will cross over?" He said, "What? To whites? No, to blacks who don't buy albums out of a trunk." <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he had that power, and I can remember seeing his albums. Back in the day when I was a kid going through the record stores, you knew they were something dirty. Oh, hell yeah. And, of course, those were the re-releases, too. The the, the covers were somewhat uh, 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 cleaned up and so on and so forth. At the very la- the least, the ones they I've had... seen were the dirty covers. What, did they have stars over the nipples? No. Yeah, they did. Are you sure? Because if you, most of them did at that point. I'm sure. It was about seventy four, seventy five when I seen him. I know by the eighties they did. That's when yeah, they were about the eighties really they did. 
Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you would see those, and they would stand out. And plus, after, he recorded his first Dolomite album in the high, in his own house. I never knew that before. Oh, I knew that. In fact, all yeah. of his party records were in his house. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing that that really is is, is uh, hammered through the film is that there's a sense of family. Yeah. The people that work with him always worked with him. Yeah. You know. With the and I love that scene where at first where his friend's holding that bottle of uh, cheap shitty vodka, and he's like, uh-huh. "You're the producer, so produce." So he starts pouring the vodka in the punch. He says, "I guess I'm producing now." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that first moment when he gets up on the stage and tells the story of the signifying monkey, and then he starts getting a drummer into it, and then the guitar oh, yeah. player. Yeah. That's what made and it stand out. And then the reaction of the club owner, too. Yeah. The reaction the of the club of the owner. The music and his talk. That's why he's called the godfather of rap. Oh, it's not. It's not just that. It's the rhythm. Yeah, the rhythm. You know, rhythm the rhythm too. is so important. And I'm not talking about you know the rhythm of drums. I'm talking about the rhythm of the delivery, of his vocal delivery. Just like anything yeah, and else. Yeah, I loved in the movie they had so many scenes of him practicing his rhythm. Right. Oh yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing. You know, uh, but it is the rhythm. I mean, just like anything else, if you're doing a reading a poem or reading a story or memorizing a routine, you're looking at the pauses. You're looking at all those things to emphasize the jokes or emphasize the humor or whatever the case would be. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, I can just say way down in the jungle deep, the badass lion stepped on the signifying monkey's feet. Is that mm-hmm. funny? No. But if I say way down in the jungle deep, the badass lion stepped on the signifying monkey's feet. And the monkey said, Mr. Lion, can't you see? You're stepping on my goddamn feet. Yeah. Yeah, it's how you, the rhythm of it. No, and and, and the vocal, uh, the, the vocal timbre, all of that goes into that. You know, when I first saw uh, when I first saw a Rudy Ray Moore film, and I saw it on HBO, and it was Dolomite. I had no yeah. idea what I was watching, right? And I just went, "What is this?" You know, and I just, as it went on, I just kept smiling. I said, "You know, by all effects, the man doesn't know what he's doing, but he does." By the time that was, and that's not the best of the Dolomite films. Of course, the uh, Human Tornado no. comes next, and it's a better film. But nonetheless, oh, I saw it. The reason why it looked so shitty on the TV and VHS is they used a crop print, and that crop right. print was open matte. What that means is all the trouble they went to to put black bars or hide the fucking boom mic. Up on the top of the fucking screen, like it's supposed uh-huh. to, that was went to shit. So you got all these shots that these motherfuckers been making fun of with the boom mic in the film, 
all because they were using the shitty pan and scan print. Yeah. Because on the Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome and the, blue, and the DVD I got you, you've noticed you can't see the boom mic as much as you could. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. But, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful thing um, because even then you see the passion behind, you know, making this film. And I knew it was low budget, uh, but, you know, yeah. there's just something wonderful about Rudy Ray Moore. There really is. You know, you watch these films and you can't help but love the guy. And of course, you know, you and I, you know, we talk about Dolomite, and of course, that's what the biopic is about. But, you know, we got to do a shout out to his best film by far. And for those who have not experienced it, you've got to see Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son in law. Oh, yeah, that's the one thing. Uh, It was like Dolomite. Great. Human tornado, even fucking greater. Uh, Petey Wittstraw, fucking amazing. Disco Godfather. Well, as he has said, that wasn't his choice. He wanted to do John Henry. Right. His Mm. way, he was going to do John Henry next. And then he was going to do Stagger Lee. Yeah. But, you know, again, we talk about folk tales. And that's what this, you know, uh, we were talking about. Folk- <laughs> These are folk tales. Yeah. They're urban folk tales. And they're wonderful. Yeah, there's, that's one thing I miss from the movie is they didn't have a bit of them uh, talking about shining the great Titanic. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that movie, it's a great movie. And if you've ever really thought that you could do something, just do it, yeah. But you got to have the talent and the passion. And you have to know your audience. By by the way, just, just as an aside, have you watched American Gods at all? No. Particularly the first season. Well, no. Shine in the Titanic is incorporated in that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it is, and it's and it's and it's uh, the Black Urban God talks about that. Yeah. And, it's, and, and I saw that, and I said, Rudy Ray Moore, you still live. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely alive now because uh, I think. Uh, uh, YouTube hits on his stuff and Lady Reed stuff have maybe doubled since that oh, movie easily. came out just on Friday. Mhm. I can believe that. I can believe that. And you know what? We have to we have to at least do a nod both to the director of the film, which is Craig Brewer, uh, who did Hustle and Flow and, and 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 a number of other films, but also to Eddie Murphy. And 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 uh, oh, Eddie God. Murphy. Eddie Murphy is just. This is the first time I've seen Eddie Murphy on a motherfucking film since I don't know when. And having a blast. You can yeah. just tell he's having fun. And and of course, let's talk about Durbell Martin, and let's talk about <laughs> Wesley Snipes. Oh, Wesley Snipes is great, and from what we've read, 
And from, well, let's be honest, the story in the movie, it's more fucked up in real life than they put in the fucking movie. Yeah. There's stories about, I'll let you tell your thing, about him being so drunk that the crew had to go hunt his ass down and drag him to the set. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I was reading an article today, and the director, Greg Brewer, had the original DP from, from Dolomite come into the set. And uh, this guy was telling stories about Derville Martin. Okay, Derville was an actor. Uh, he'd been in a number of films, and during the, during the movie, you know, My Name is Dolomite, you see that that uh, that Rudy Ray goes to him and offers him to direct it. So anyway, you know, talking about drinking, uh, uh, Craig Brewer was giving this story, and he said they couldn't fit it in, where Derville Martin actually was so hungover and so drunk he was directing the movie from a fetal position on the floor. <laughs> yeah, so all of the wacky stuff from the movie is not comedy. It's real. <laughs> yes, they did they did take over a hotel and, and, and kick out all the whitels and steal the electric from the next door. They did. But they cut out the punchline of that, which I think would have been too big for the movie. And it would have made it look like a, a honest joke, which was when they hooked, first time they hooked up the electricity, it blew the transformer and took out a city block. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, yeah, I mean, but- yeah. Wesley Snipes is great in this movie, and his exit scene is so fucking awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. in case you're wondering, Carl, that that scene right there with uh, Wesley Snipes in them, that's what really was in the original unrated cut, but when it was taken over by Filmways, they cut it to an R, and that was basically the biggest scene cut out. And when they went to restore the film, that part was lost. Oh. So, yes, there was a print with uh, Dolomite ripping out <laughs> Durville Martin's intestines. Nice. And the guy that was in uh, Kim Peel, uh, who played Jerry Jones, his line reading during that thing was just so fucking perfect, wasn't it? Yeah. God damn, Dolomite. Oh, and he was great, too, as Jerry Jones. Oh, yeah. And for all you people who are virgins, uh, some of the best scenes in that movie that they filmed, like the sex scene, the scene with the sheriff, the scene in there, they're from the human tornado. Right, and that's not nitpicking. That's just saying. And I and once the director said why he did it, he's like, "When the hell is Rudy Raymore going to be have another biopic?" And most of people's favorite scenes are those from the Human Tornado. Hmm. 
Okay, so I just checked something out. Yeah. Do you know that Derville Martin actually uh, directed another film? Yeah, he only directed two films. I didn't know that. Disco 9000, oh God help us. You've seen that, right? No, I have not. It's not good. Okay. <laughs> it's another caper film. Okay. It's one of those that Tarantino tried to get the rights for his uh, film label but couldn't. So he got Detroit okay. 5000 instead. Which actually is the better movie, so. Yeah. But yeah, everyone is good in this movie. There's no weak link in it. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. And Craig Robinson singing, god damn me. Oh, absolutely. Oh, two songs he sung. Especially the one where he talks about uh going to the girl and he said, I wanna drink your bath water, baby. Keep them greens nice and warm. <laughs> yeah. But where the fuck did that come from? I don't care. I was singing along with it during the end credits. Nice. Oh, and it does have an amazing fucking soundtrack. If you want to get the complete soundtrack of all of the 70 songs, that's not that's not on the original soundtrack with a score. There's a fucking hell of a spot playlist on Spotify. It'll keep you going for four or five hours, and it has basically all of them. Uh, Brooke Benton, Rainy Night in Georgia, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself, uh, Let's Get It On. And there's a shitload more. Nice. Yeah, it's one of those. You gotta admit it had a badass score, don't don't you? Carl? Oh hell yeah! Oh of course. You know, I oh, I would hope people, that any movie any movie from that era, they're gonna do the research and have a badass score. Yeah, Craig Brewer. This was a work of love for Craig Brewer, Eddie Murphy. The two writers who did a better job here than he did on Ed Wood. Yeah. Yeah, and, I'm not and, saying and Ed you know Wood what? is a bad movie. I'm just saying that Dolomite didn't need all the window dressing that Ed Wood had. No. No, agreed. Agreed. Uh, but you know what? I, I want to at least, want, before we go, we're talking about Craig Brewer. And I, I want to specifically mention another film, okay? And and that would be the um, I'm just trying to get the the name of it right now. And uh, damn it, what's the movie that he did with? Um, oh, Black Black Snake Moan. Yeah, Black Snake Moan. Okay. And, and the reason I mention that is, you know, you're talking about music. You want to see something with with an incredible music store and also with Samuel L. Jackson just kicking ass as a blues singer. Oh, you need uh, to see Black Snake Moan. 
What? I, just thinking of that scene where he catches Christina Ricci with that with his uh, nephew. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> hmm. Or what was that yeah. song you had us play on here that Samuel L. Jackson covered? Uh oh, I I hold on, I'll I'll get it was to it you. Was it Manish Boy? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Manish Boy. That's funny. Craig Brewer's done three that. films now. He's done his mm-hmm. rap film. Right. He's done his blues film. Right. And now he's done his 70s R&B film. You know, and don't forget, too, he's behind uh, Empire, too, which yeah. is a really fine TV show. You know, so he's done good work. Yeah, because the music score in Dolomite Is My Name is as big as a character in it. As the movie itself. Right. As Rudy, you know. It does and, everything and, in its power to put you... Oh, and what, my favorite Easter egg is during the first of the film when he's walking by, it focuses on the clothing store. Right. And in that window, if you look, you will see his outfit from the human tornado mm-hmm. and Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law. Yep. And there's yep. a great mention of Petey Wheatstraw, too, in that one scene that I was talking about on there. He's like, and we'll have an all-girl kung fu army. Yeah, and we'll have possession, too, because they like that shit. He's like, no, we can't have possession. Yeah, I don't want to be cleaning up no green vomit and shit from my, my, <laughs> my studio floor. We'll save that shit for later on. Yeah. There's so many little jokes in this movie for Rudy Ray Moore hardcore fans. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No. Like, uh, Ab- put your weight on it. I know he said that earlier, but most people would know it from Disco Godfather. But there's only one movie that Rudy Ray Moore considered his biggest mistake. And sadly, I do agree with him. I don't know what the hell AIP was thinking. Uh, if you're a Rudy Ray Moore fan, you don't have to watch... Get up here. You don't have to watch Monkey Hustle. You know what? I don't hate it nearly as much as you do. Uh, I don't hate it's it. Not it's a, just a wasted. It's just wasting Rudy Ray Moore. Yeah, and I will, that I would agree with. That I would agree with. But Yafit Koto's good. But even though he's playing Rudy Ray Moore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I'll tell I'll tell you a couple of things you need you need to know. Um, not not that he did a lot of films or that sort of thing. But one of the things that we've got to mention is his influence on people like Snoop Dogg. Oh, God. Okay, who's in Snoop the Dogg, Too Short, uh, Easy E. Yeah. No, I mean, he. there's a video short that Snoop Dogg did called Doggy Dog World where, where Rudy Ray actually plays the Dolomite character. Yeah. And, and he... You know, just, you know, they would do things like, uh, he would do a lot of uh, uh, 
TV movies and that sort of thing. Uh, but he had a lot of fun. And and but the main films, of course, would be Dolomite, Human Tornado, and Petey Wheatstraw. And you know he has a role in Penitentiary too. You know. Yeah. I've never seen him in it. I gotta watch that movie again. See if I can spot his ass. Yeah, it's a cameo, but he plays the husband. Yeah. Oh, and uh, murder is in is the case Snoop Dogg short film. Right. When uh, Snoop Dogg sells his soul to the devil. Yep. Petey Wheatstraw is the one who comes and and, uh, gets the contract. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And that's the one you need to watch for Halloween, because that one's insane. Watermelon jokes, the the devil after him. It's just a great... And it doesn't keep out on the horror elements, either. No, and and, and let's not forget that that Petey Wheatstraw is born at 14 years old. That whole birth yeah. scene at the beginning fucking hysterical. And beating the, and it's got one of our favorite actors in it, which Carl Shit when he first seen him. Okay. Cy Richardson. Oh, absolutely. Love yeah, he Cy. plays Pete White. He's like, holy shit, Cy. And in the Human Tornado, he had uh, what was the name from Ghostbusters and Oz. I forget. You know, the guy who played the black guy in Ghostbusters. Oh, Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson. Yeah, Ernie Hudson was in Human Tornado. Yeah. Good good stuff. Go watch that movie, then go watch Rudy Ray's movies, then listen to his albums. And realize and you that know what? they were... Listen to him sing, too. Oh, God, yeah. Well, you can, because when they play Zing Zang, Wing Bang Boom in the movie, that's Rudy actually singing. Right, but also, you know, all his stuff is basically on YouTube, as far as his, yeah. his vocal stuff. And Put you Your Weight it On It is a great song by him. Oh, absolutely. And that absolutely. is a true story. He was signed to a major local record label. But he had the damn bad luck to be signed at the exact same time James Brown was. Right, and that would be federal records. Now, that's yeah. one thing. You know, I know the, the history of this stuff pretty well. And, and when the, uh, the, the White brothers that, that, that give him the record contract and then, and then he has to sell the idea of the movie to, they are, in actuality, representations of the Biryani brothers who ran federal records. And then previous to that, they had run a a record company called Modern out of L.A. And so it was between them. uh, It was sort of an amalgam of those two things. But he was signed to federal almost the exact, well, I think within a month after James Brown was. Yeah. Okay? Because he had previously been on Modern. Uh, but so man, yeah. Bit of history, Carl. Tell us what was so big that, and they showed it the first and fell about Laugh Records, L-A-F-S. Well, Laugh Records was okay. So, so let's let's just give a little. So, back in the forties and fifties, uh, you and, and this was before forty fives. Let's say 
78, you would have these white label party records that, that you know, just had the name of the song, no, no person and that sort of thing. And, and uh, you also had a label called Pearl with a, a character, uh, a singer by the name of Larry Vincent. And these were, were body songs, you know, like the, the Woodpecker song, you know, putting his beak in and out, in and out, and, you know, you get the idea. Uh, no, and on, so anyway, the people that did that, then in the 50s, when it started becoming albums and, and, and 45s, they pulled together and they started this company called Laugh, which was not really under the, the counter, but sort of like was that area where where it was just body enough to sell, you know, but they didn't want to go really, really, you know, uh, blue language and things like that. And so at the beginning, Rudy Ray tries to sell his stuff to Laugh Records, and they're saying, uh-uh, we can't do that. So that's what Laugh Records was. Yeah. Yeah. Originally, he sold it himself, but I would love to, and I'd hate to pay the price for it, get an original, original copy of Eat Out More Often. I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, no. I'm sure there anyone are, who has yeah, that yeah. ain't going. That's one of those that anyone who has that ain't going to motherfucking sell it. Exactly. And they'll pull a gun on you before they even showing it at show you, right, Carl? Right. They'll be like, here, you yep. can look at it, click, but don't. Don't fucking touch it. And plus, since it was in white paper, how many complete copies do you think there possibly could be? Not, not, not many. I don't, I, don't, I don't really know, Stephen, to be honest. I, I can't answer that question. Well, I'm just assuming that that white paper would not be in pristine, non-yellowed, any tears. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yep. But yeah. Go see Jug Faces if you have it. And if uh, his new one comes out, at a festival near you, go see it too, and definitely go see Dolomite is my name, and watch ha- and then ready for the rest of Halloween week. We got a story show coming up with Carl coming up in the next couple of days whenever I can record it, and we also have probably what day are you free? Uh, free Tuesday or Wednesday? Uh, at this point, uh, Tuesday looks better. Uh, okay. Wait a second, wait a second. Uh, let me get to you on that. I think it might be Wednesday. Well, it'll have to be Wednesday at 8 o'clock, you know, at 8 o'clock. Uh, yeah. let, me, let me get back to you tomorrow on that. Let me check on that, okay? Is there any reason why I'm not asking you to be on Monday? Yes, there is. <laughs> because well, what would that be, sir? On, on DLN, uh, Deviant Legion Network, I will be uh, doing a... Uh, podcast in memoriam to the passing of one of the great actors, uh, and that would be Robert Forster, best known probably for Jackie Brown, but but a man who just was an incredible character actor and someone I loved dearly, and uh, uh, he passed away. Uh, and uh, my guest on the show will be George Rother, a.k.a. The Movie Guy. 
and George and I will be discussing uh, uh, his uh, his filmography and also uh, uh, give you suggestions of hidden gems to watch and where to find them. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow. And Thursday I already got booked, and we're going to be heading down from Tennessee down to Louisville, Kentucky for some reason. I don't know why we might stop in a medical supply warehouse, but who knows. (laughs) Okay. Thank you all for listening, and go see Chad Kinkle's movies, damn it. They're worth it. Absolutely. And, and Dolomite is my the name. Too. It's a good one. Yeah. Absolutely. Stephen, as always, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And Carl says, go see any horror film that's out in theaters this week that has goals in it. Seagulls. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Go see The Lighthouse. Oh, and Carl, I always remember this. You can say someone's a cocksucker on your show, but you can't say that they suck cock. Okay. I'll remember that. <laughs> what? Okay. What? 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 Okay. Good night, everybody. Good night. All praise, hush, hold, hold that, and for downright real people, I want you to listen, be what you are, and be the very best of what you are, whatever your thing is, make your own self a star. When y'all see me riding around here with gold handles on each one of my doors, they have the nerve to say that motherfucker is pimping over. They call me a liar, a thief. Some of you even call me a freak. Then you say that motherfucker done got on top. He must have done it by eating cock. But if all of that, that was done behind closed doors was brought to light, there'd be a whole lot of cocksuckers and dicklickers and freakish motherfuckers sitting right out here tonight. So what have you got to take and what have you got to give? As long as I live the life that I love, Cause I love the life that I live. But furthermore, if you stir your finger round up in your own pot, you would be too damn busy trying to find out what kind of dick that I've got. So I'm going to live for today. Cause I'm not promised tomorrow. I want plenty of good loving and less pain and sorrow. 
So I'm going to keep on living and being wise. And I'm going to be the very best of what I am. And for those who don't like it, confidentially, I don't give a damn. Because I live the life that I love, and I love the life that 